Hi. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about some bonus content from Spotlight On. Head over to spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog and check out Bonus Tracks, the official blog of this podcast. There's special material exclusive only to the website. Have a look. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on guitarist Dominic Miller, a musician unique in his ability to fit in and contribute as a sideman, but also able to step up as a band leader. Dominic may be best known as guitarist and in his own words, lieutenant for Sting, a position he's filled for over 30 years, but he's been creating his own diverse body of work for many decades as well. Dominic joined Spotlight On to talk about his latest release on ECM Records, Vagabond, which is an instrumental album rich in narrative and taste. In addition to exploring the new album, we also get great insight into Dominic's work as a solo artist and session musician and how that contributes to his work with Sting and more about his inspirations and aims as an artist. I hope you enjoy. Very excited to talk to you about the new record. And I've spent a lot of time with it over the last few days. Oh, and, great. Um, yeah, it's wonderful. It's really beautiful. Thanks, man. To, to jump right in, it's basically the two-year anniversary of when you recorded, if I understand correctly. It is, that, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is where we're in ECM time. They have their own clock. It's, it's, it's like treacle. Yeah, I wondered if, that, if it was more related to the pandemic or your busy schedule. But more importantly, how, how does the music sit for you two years out? Do you know, did you step away for a while and come back, or had you been living with it the whole time? No, I stepped away from it completely. It's quite a surreal experience doing an album for ECM. Is as you probably know, you go in the studio for two days. It's two days recording and one or two days mixing, and that's how this was. You know, I mean, I spent a few months writing it during the pandemic, and then I got my musicians in and we spent a few days rehearsing the stuff. I was teaching them the, the themes, and then we just went in, and then it was over. Like with ECM, you know, looking at some release dates. And I suppose they had a bit of a backlog with all these stuff because of COVID. So mm -hmm. I, I was put in the ECM queue. Finally, like my number has come up and the <laughs> album is released. It's interesting that you talk about, you make direct reference to the process, though, of recording. I mean, given the diversity of your experiences, much different process than recording a pop album or a rock album. Completely. Primarily, there's many reasons why everything is recorded live. There's no manipulation. There's no edits. There's no Pro Tools. That, we're not even doing it on a grid. And by that, you probably know what I mean. But what, to your listeners, it means we're not doing it each measure on a computerized grid, mm -hmm. which is how all pop music is done that way. This is just on the fly. This is like the 70s, you know, just roll tape and uh, there you go. It's just warts and all you know but that's what i like about it i live in the world of pop and rock and to do something that's 180 degrees the other way is important to me and it's important to the people i work in the rock world that i do that too so when i come back into let's say sting's universe i've got some experience that i've had an amazing experience doing this and it's like the way we do it live is we really improvise a lot that's fascinating that not only do you feel that it benefits that other work, but the way you describe it is 
something just shy of a requirement, but it's really key, fundamental to the diversity of work you're doing, bringing that back to your sort of, if you can, if you would allow me to say your day jobs. Yeah. It's like cross-training. It's a good example of cross-training. I'm doing something that's it's a different discipline that actually helps me in my pop and rock world because I can bring some of that into it. And that's how it always works. And absolutely, I bring a lot of stings and of the pop and rock ethos and philosophy into the realm of improvised and more avant-garde music. Absolutely. And I bring that discipline into it, particularly around the sense of form and construction. That's why the song, they're like songs, you know. I'm, I'm really interested in how songs are constructed. And so I want to bring that into the ECM world. I want to come back to that in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask you about, for any given project, how do you go about assembling the players? Is that something, you know, is that the Dominic Miller Rolodex? Is that the role of the producer? Who puts the guys together? Well, it's a combination of the kind of lineup that I would like to use, plus Manfred Eicher, who's the producer and the head of the label. It's kind of a combination of, you know, it's a few conversations we might have about the type of music that I want to do. I don't like doing the same thing each time. So I don't want to repeat the process, which is very much an ECM type of thing. And, you know, Manfred has opinions about this kind of thing too. So I'll tell him the kind of instrumentation that I want, and then I'll talk to him about the players that I, I want involved. And he'll have an opinion about that. He might inspire me to go in a different direction as well. But the thing I look for the most in musicians when I'm in the studio is instinct, is uh, people who have a very strong instinct for the here and now, for the moment. Because we're only going to be there for a brief moment, which is two days, I need to have people who doesn't matter what how they feel whether they've got a cold or they're, they're just to be in that zone in the moment that's really important and that's how we choose the musicians obviously nicholas is the constant in a lot of your projects as i was thinking about that i thought is nicholas your dominic <laughs> the, yeah i don't know what you mean actually i've heard that said before because it's like sting you know i've been with him for a long time and some people say that you know he couldn't do it without me or something, which I, I'm the last person to believe that or the first person to disbelieve it. But Nicholas is very much that. He's like my hard drive. He kind of knows all my stuff in some ways better than I do, which gives me the, a lot of uh, peace of mind that knowing that I've got someone beside me who's, who knows the structures really well. Also, he acts as a sort of a balancing act keeps me stable, you know what I mean? In the same way that I probably do for staying musically, I know all this stuff inside out. I'm useful to him for, because of that. Um, and Nicholas is like that for me. It's fascinating that just given the roles you play, that you can be both like the trusted support team player, confidant, consigliere, whatever, you would, whatever word we would throw in there, but then you also can leverage that as well in another individual. It's just a fascinating set of experiences you have that you can bring to bear as a leader and collaborator. Strikes me as somewhat unique. I don't, I, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, it's but great. It's, it's, that, it's kind of the role of a lieutenant. It's like if we're going into battle, I've got to let the leader know what the dangers are or what's ahead and, and call him on questionable decisions that he may be 
making or just to argue certain points. And that happens all the time in music. Sting has to have someone around him who's going to call him out. And Nicholas calls me out regularly. And I think that's the role, that's the job of a lieutenant is just to be the, uh, you know, devil's advocate constantly, just showing the, uh, the options. Yeah. Something that's, that's very striking is the breadth and depth of your discography. When someone asks you to play with them, what gets you to yes beyond things like scheduling and availability? Are you of the mindset you'll try anything once or do you have to have a, an immediate understanding of the music? Like what, what's that about for you? Well, what gets me to yes is something I talk to students about a lot in when I do clinics is I'm kind of hard driven to accept work when it comes my way. Who am I to turn anything down? Am I too good to turn anything down? I don't think so. So I've done all kinds of stuff. And one of the reasons I do everything is because it's always in these unexpected unions that I find myself in or that I meet the most interesting people and luck happens 10 years down the line. So I've got a sort of a, an instinct about it. It's like, what gets me to yes is that I'm free. If I'm free, it's going towards yes. I love being in situations that I know nothing about, that I, I don't know who this artist is. I know the type of music they do and everything, but I want to learn from them. And if I can learn something from them, be it the cheesiest pop thing, I will learn something from it. I will get something out of it and I'll make it the best possible experience for them and for me. I become richer as a result. And then my kind of musical DNA gets more uh, profound. You know, that's why I do it. I do everything. For instance, I was offered to do a classical album 20 years ago for Decca. How am I going to say no to that? You know what I mean? Somebody called me and said, do you want to do a classical record? I thought, are you kidding me? But then I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I'll do that with orchestra and stuff like that. You know, the other times I do a session for the Sugar Babes or something or the Backstreet Boys. I'm going to learn something from that. Probably not necessarily from the artist, but maybe the producer or maybe the guy who's making the tea in the studio will remember me and then recommend me for something years, years later because he thought I was cool. This is how the business works. When students ask me, how do you make it? I say, first of all, don't turn anything down because you never know what it could lead to. I'm hardwired to accept work. And also because I'm a musician, work is a miracle. It's a miracle to be able to be making a living out of this, out of doing something that you love. Who am I to turn anything down? Do you have a sense of what someone is after in the moment that they say, let's phone Dominic Miller for this? Do you understand what's going on there at all? Yeah, I think that what they want is my take on what they're doing. They probably heard a lot of stuff that I've done. But I think what they're looking for is, is my take on, on it. I'm like a like a set designer, you know what I mean? It's like if you equate it to theater or the movie industries, it's like I come with a, a set of a skills, kind of a design aesthetic. I'm going to bring that. I try to be original in every situation that I'm in. And so I think that's what they're signing up for. And I usually get there. Sometimes I don't, but it's quite rare that I don't. So that's what they're signing up for. 
And I'm signing up for it by showing up because I want to get something from them too so that I can become stronger. It's a two-way thing. Have these experiences taught you or informed you in terms of how to lead your own ensembles? Absolutely. You know, I'm glad you asked that because I've, I've learned a lot from the best. Yeah, it's a very different thing leading an, an ensemble because the fundamental dynamic of leading, of being a leader, is that you're taking the responsibility of the whole thing. You're carrying it, the message. So like, for instance, when I'm working as a sideman on a session, on a record, all with Sting, obviously, because I've been with him for years, my goal is to help him get his message across, which is, first of all, to serve the music. That's my mission, is to make it as easy as possible for him to get his thing across. That's my responsibility when I'm a sideman. But when I'm a leader, it's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. I'm trying to tell the story, and I don't have lyrics. So I need my guys to support me in that endeavor. Of course, I use the same sort of musical director techniques and skills that Sting uses and other people and producers I've worked with use. And a lot of it is psychological techniques and it has a lot to do with making musicians feel good about what they're doing. You know, this is one thing that Sting's very good at is he likes to make us shine. By doing that, he really uh, gets a lot of respect back from us. You know, the whole thing of mutual respect is really important. I want my guys to feel good. I want them to take solos which I did very much so on the record. I want them to feel like they own it. But the actual narrative or the message is very clear in my mind. And I know how I want it. And I want them to back me up. But I'm, I'm holding the responsibility, you know, completely holding. I mean, I'm selling tickets. I'm, my name is on the bill, you know. It's a risk. I'm going out there. I'm hiring musicians and roadies and stuff like that. And it's like it all could all go to shit really quickly but i want my guys to help me make it a success we'll be back with more spotlight on after this break and now back to spotlight on it's interesting because you've veered the conversation where i wanted to go next which is there's some words that came up a lot in the material provided for this album but also in just learning about you over the years. I should also disclose, I saw you about 20 years ago at Joe's Pub. Oh, really? Uh, it was fantastic before Sting and Chris came out. I, I really yeah. enjoyed watching that, you in that environment. That It's almost like a close-up shot through a viewfinder. It was really lovely. But the words that were coming up repeatedly were around narrative, concept, story. Could you tell me a little bit about how you manifest those concepts in an instrumental music? It, it is impressionistic in a way because we're, by virtue of the fact that I'm not dealing with hard words, you know, I hear a story in instrumental music. I mean, look at Bach and Mozart. Bach and Mozart and Chopin speaks to people. You know, it really does. And why is that? I'm fascinated by that because the great thing about great composers is, or instrumental music is that it, it's almost like an interactive experience with the listener. 
is it's allowing the listener to create the narrative. It really becomes interactive, almost co-collaborative. That's my sort of thought process on all this. It's like instrumental music. There's so much to do there. You know, I think instrumental music is in some ways more profound than lyrical music. That's why the, my favorite lyricists are usually the ones that are not actually, well, what you're hearing is not actually what they're saying. It's like, you know, you look at Tom Waits or uh, Bob Dylan as well sometimes. When it's, just, it's not really specific. It's allowing you to make up your mind what, this, what he's saying because it's not specific. Those are the best lyricists for me. That's the closest I'll get to hearing lyrical lyrics be instrumental because it's, it's allowing the listener to form an opinion about it. Is this album then, is there a meta narrative? Is this a concept album? I, I feel like, I feel like family and personal, I don't think of you as an artist who overshares or who over articulates there, even in your biographies that if, if one's to read your biography or even read different biographies of you over the years, they're very high level. Dominic was here and then he was there and now he's here. <laughs> and I appreciate, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking to psychologically analyze you or to make you uncomfortable, but I am curious. There does seem to be a little bit of a peeling away. You make reference to the poem that the album takes its title from. Yeah. I think there's, there's something very beautiful in the idea that your father liked that poem. Yeah. I would never know that about my father. You know, that's a beautiful yeah, thing. I mean, it really touched me though. And it actually made it, my life very easy because the first thing that came to me with this album was the title and I don't have one tune on the album that's called Vanderbilt but I don't need it usually that's the way forward for me once I have a like I I did another album called Absent once I had a title it just like everything kind of followed that so of course it's a concept album I mean Lawrence I'm totally into concept albums I mean big time mate the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon being the, probably the, the ultimate concept album. I'm always trying to do Dark Side of the Moon. It's a shame I couldn't join all the tunes together because that would be my first choice. But in today's kind of iTunes world, I suppose they don't like you to do that. They want to have individual tracks. But if I'd had my way, I would have stuck them all together. But yes, of course, it's a, it's a concept album. The concept, it started with this idea of someone who's free, And that's what a vagabond means to me. I don't consider myself a vagabond, you know. It's not autobiographical in any sense. But I do relate to someone who's free. And to me, that's what a vagabond is. It's someone who goes from town to town and shares stories in exchange for food and shelter. The fact that my father related to that type of character tells me a lot about him. So that helped me a lot. So I I felt that I've got to do this. I'm going to go from house to house and tell different stories. Then it helped me understand what I'm trying to do more. So if you were going to talk concept, I think of it more like a play. It's it's drama, amateur dramatics, you know, like in a small theater with 70 people in there, half full. I've got eight scenes and four actors, and we're going to try and cover these different stories or create different scenes for you as an audience member to sort of be a part of. Hence all the space that I'm leaving you to fill. 
If there were ever a concept, it would be that. I've created eight scenes in a small play, intimate play. I'm not thinking big or anything like that because, mate, I've had my glory. I've played in stadiums. I've played on hit records. I've got gold discs. I've got all the things that you can imagine that would define making it. I've made it in that sense. But to me, this is important. There's no pressure here. I'm not trying to have a great career with this or anything. I just want to do something that's meaningful, even if it's just to a few people. And if it does become successful, I'll take it. But that's not the uh, be all and end all. I'm not out there to try and be successful with this, you know? Well, I think maybe we should apply for an arts grant. Let's go stage that show. We could do it at Joe's Pub. It would be the perfect room for it. There you go, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get working on that when we hang up. How did you know your dad identified with the poem and the character? Did, like, that's, a, that's an interesting conversation for a father and son to have. Or did you not acquire it directly? I didn't know. My mom told me um, after we buried him. Of course, you know, a lot of things come out when uh, our loved ones die and things that one didn't know. I learned this, which really touched me. The fact that it should be a a John Macefield poem called Vagabond. My mum said this is his favourite poem. And my father was very well read. And of all the poems that he could have chosen, he chose that one to be his favourite. And I read it, and it really touched me. And, of course, it's it's, it's about a nomadic lifestyle, which I kind of live in, you know. I do feel it that I am that as well. Of course, that was very touching to me, you know, and I, I think my sisters knew about it, but I was the last to know. The other thing that's fascinating about the poem itself, and you mentioned, I wanted to ask you about your dad's education. You mentioned that he was well-read. The vernacular of the language in the poem is so, you know, this is not a flourishy, ornate piece of writing. It's very accessible. It's very direct. It's very common language. It's very stunning. It's very stunning in its simplicity. It's written in a in a old English kind of dialect. Lovely use of, of letters. It's really stunning, I think, and quite touching. Yeah, I agree. That sort of leads me to another word that was associated with you a lot. It's a word, I guess, concept, internationalism. And again, reflected in a high level in your biography, parents of different from different cultures, different nationalities, the way you grew up, the way you moved, where you live now, the lifestyle that you mentioned you live, you know, you're a touring artist to a large degree. Without making too much of it, I wonder two things. Does the moving a lot and moving even a couple of times as a younger person, does that impact your adaptability and your ability to fit in musical situations at all? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head there. I think that's been a a real asset for me because I, first of all, I grew up in Argentina for my first 11 years. And then I, I was dropped in the middle of Wisconsin, in Racine, Wisconsin, which I thought as a foreigner, I thought this is America. And it has remained so throughout my adult life. I always think of the Midwest as the sort of, okay, this is America, Chicago, Milwaukee, you know, Minneapolis, but the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin. And of course, I was really influenced by, as a young man, by the music that was happening in the early 70s with Carole King, James Taylor, singer-songwriter music, Neil Young. Mostly folk rock was like, it just 
really got into my skin. And Paul Simon, post Simon Garfunkel, where he really got deep inside his songwriting. I consider Paul Simon to be probably the most important. He's like Gershwin. He's one of the most important songwriters in the American canon of songwriting. So I was very lucky to be exposed to that as a young teenager. And then, of course, moving to England and then being exposed to all the raw English rock of Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and all this, and just like I'm being thrown right into it. It was amazing. But to cut a long story short, but then I moved back to America again for my high school years. So then I found myself back in America when I was 15, between the age of 15 and 18, where I was right in the middle of Americana music again in the Midwest. And so in the Midwest, we were listening to all the usual international stuff like Queen and all the Pink Floyd and everything. But we were also listening to Fleetwood Mac. I was listening to Bob Seger. Amazing music. And had a real kind of American feel to it, which I've always really liked. And then Earth, Wind and & Fire and Stevie Wonder really got it. And more soul music. It just became part of my uh, package. And let's not forget, all throughout all of this time, I was always listening to Brazilian music because that's what my dad and I used to listen to at home. And I used to play that shit every day because for me, Brazilian music was always ground zero. Brazilian music and Latin American music, that's really was in my skin. That's what I grew up with and was never going to leave me. Everything that I heard, rock, folk, jazz, had to have a part of being in kind of concert with the Latin American groove and feel. I feel very rich in that respect. Of course, I've brought all these elements into everything that I do. The folk rock, the funk and jazz and soul from America, and the raw energy of English rock music, which doesn't sound anything like American rock music. It's much more dirtier, you know? It's less refined. I mean, I love the Eagles, but a, an English band could never play like that, or Steely Dan, play that refined. I like that American approach to perfection. It's just sublime. We don't have that in England, but what we do have is we got fucking Led Zeppelin, and we got bands that are Black Sabbath that, that, that are really raw, and that speaks to teenagers in a way that it spoke to American teenagers in a really profound way. And I understand why more than they do because I came from both sides. You know what I mean? Yeah. Plus the Latin American side has always helped me. It's never far away from me to put a syncopated rhythm somewhere or an anticipated beat on the guitar. For some reason, that's my go-to. It's my dialect. It's my musical dialect. Accent is that. It's syncopation. Who were the Brazilian artists of that era? Would it have been, like, is it the, is it Gilberto Gil? Is it, is it Milton Nascimento? More like Baden-Powell. He's a guitar player from Brazil who was like my Hendrix. Actually, Hendrix was my Hendrix too, because I put him <laughs> at the top. Hendrix is, is right up there. But Baden-Powell was the South American Hendrix on guitar, playing pre-Bossa Nova, and then that crossed over into Bossa Nova, and of course, Carlos Jobim, and all that stuff, uh, Vinicius de Moraes, all these different artists. And then Gilberto Gil was more of a modern version of that. More pop-inflected. 
Yeah, more pop inflected. Because the thing about bossa nova, early bossa nova, which has roots in traditional Brazilian music as well, they're using jazz chords. So by learning all these tunes and just going there, I was learning without realizing it. I was learning the kind of jazz harmonic vocabulary without actually knowing I was doing it. So when I became 18 or 19, I already had that in me. It became uh, natural for me to be working with in different situations. And for instance, as a session player, where I could understand what was going on harmonically, you know, because it's, it's all in the jazz chords. I talk to a lot of artists about the fact that that time in their lives or a time in a listener's development where they can actually process the jazz harmonics and the jazz chords, you know, as a listener. Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely to speak in general in generalities, it's not necessarily a music that a first time listener can heed, can fully take in. No, I think it's asking a lot of the listener to take that in. That's why the simplest version of it is always the best, which actually teaches you that the simplest version of anything is always the best because then it becomes more accessible, not necessarily better, but certainly more accessible. But yeah, I mean, it can be kind of intimidating listening to expensive jazz chords. You know, that's why I like to, I'm kind of obsessed with taking voices out of a chord. A chord doesn't need to be more than three voices. You've got the bass note, the harmony, and, and what the melody is. You don't need more than that. So what can you take out to make it actually bigger? It becomes bigger. It's like a game of Jenga. How much can you take away to allow this thing to hold together? Yeah. You know, that's what really good harmony is, is what you take out. That's what great artists like Matisse is line drawing, but it's all there, mate. You're getting that story. You're getting the narrative, but you don't have to telegraph all these fucking notes, which is what a lot of jazz musicians do. And that's unfortunately what happened with fusion music is that it just got, became too intellectual. It's like, it was uh, kind of shunning people away from the art form, from the uh, genre. It, it was the inevitable conclusion of jazz's move from the dance hall to the conservatory, or the idea that you'd sit down and go watch it as opposed to being in an environment where exactly. it was played and you'd interact with it. It's interesting what you talk about, you know, about the removal as well. I just heard a, an interview with The Edge, and he was talking about that was a big part of his sound. He didn't, he wanted to play with the idea of neither major nor minor chords, so he would just take out the thirds all the time. I, I totally agree with that. Let the melody do that. See, that's the job of the singer. But really, you don't need to say very much as a, as an. That's why I consider The Edge to be a guitar hero, because he's one of the great accompanists of all the time, because he supported the song. He never went to the melody. He just played what was what the best way you could support the song. And so did Lindsey Buckingham. And so did Andy Summers in The Police. A lot of suspended chords. You talk about not putting thirds in. Andy Summers very often had a suspended chord where he didn't have a third and he'd have a, he'd have a fourth. So it'd be a suspended fourth. It's interesting because I was talking to Vinnie Colaiuta, uh, drummer, about Herbie Hancock and his time in Miles Davis where Miles, I think, if I'm not mistaken, said, I don't want any of those happy... Pretty notes, you know, like thirds and, and major sevens and stuff like that. So he made, he said, I don't play any thirds and no major sevens or even sevens. If you're going to articulate 
anything. Just use synths, which is more kind of a classical approach. So he put the handcuffs on Herbie, so no thirds. And it's amazing what a musician can do with handcuffs on. Yeah. And it's a great discipline for any musician is take away some of your colors. Okay, you've taken away two of the pri- your primary colors. What can you do with just the other color? Are you, can you still be an artist? Are you still good enough for this gig when we put the handcuffs on you? And, you know, believe me, we've got Vinny Colaiuta, one of the greatest drummers in the world. Sting used to make him play very simple stuff on the ride cymbal. I just want fours here, and I don't want any of that hi-hat stuff, and you're just going to do this on this song. I just want it straight. So to have someone like Vinny Colaiuta find a way to make that incredibly creative, that's genius. You know, within restriction, you can be actually sometimes more creative. If you gave Picasso just some charcoal and an oil color of blue, he'll come up with it. Trust me, it'll it'll be fine. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you about the album or the plans around it. It's out now. It's in the world. I take note and I hear what you say about not necessarily doing this for anything other than your desire to put the music out there. But what's your role as a modern musician? Will you, are there gigs? Do you support it? Or are you, is this so far in your rearview mirror that you're on to the next project? Like, how do you metabolize this as a working artist? I've got some commitments with some shows. So I'm doing, I've just done a bunch of shows around Europe with my band. And I'm going to do some more next week, in a week or so. Around, I'm going to play in Paris and London and Hamburg and Amsterdam and I'm going to do some shows, but then I work, I've got the day job and I'm going to be touring with Sting throughout the summer and probably till the end of the year. Then I'm going to do some shows in South America with my band. But I intend that next year, 2024, I'm going to be going out for an extensive touring segment, probably three or four months, going out with this, my band, my incredible band, and just having some fun and just playing, not necessarily just this album, because I've, I've made other albums, and just present what my music is, you know. Yes, the album is out. Part of me, of course, I was hoping that people would be running out on the streets and the France and the rest of the world would be declared a national holiday for everybody because in celebration of my album. But that didn't happen. The missed opportunity. <laughs> you know, I think everybody expects that to happen, but it's amazing when an album is put out. It's like it's out. It's like, well, now what? It doesn't really matter, but I'm, it's a great pr- privilege, Lawrence, to be able to have a, a label behind me, and especially a label like ECM, who, who kind of get what's possible with music, especially live music. They really support live music. They encourage it, unlike any other label. So I feel incredibly privileged to be in a position where I can go in a studio with my mates and lay down some riffs and uh, compositions and I'm really, really happy with just that opportunity. And anything else is a bonus. What a storied tradition to be a part of. I mean, to have your own little sort of plaque on the wall of ECM is a very beautiful tradition to be part of. Oh, absolutely. I feel very lucky, yeah. Dominic, thank you. Thank you for spending time. I very much appreciate it. I know it's much later in the day for you. Congratulations on the album. And I hope we see you stateside, either in your day job or with this ensemble. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. And I'll see you in the West Coast. 
Thank you so much, Dominic Miller. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.